invite your attention to the book of Jude, which is right before the book of Revelation. I'd just like to share a few things from this epistle. Uh, this is an amazing epistle. I believe it's got tremendous content for our day and age in which we live. Uh, of course, all the scriptures are given by the inspiration of God, and this is not an exception. This is a great um, letter by the half-brother, at least as much as we understand, of Jesus Christ himself, uh, Jude. You could also refer him to as Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas is his full name. He's also known as a surname by Thaddeus. That's a name you'll find in one of the gospel accounts, or Labaius, another name of his. And so we come before you this morning with the understanding that we're all like Jude, the servants of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in the very first verse. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. You know, we're all servants of something or someone, are we not? Jesus said on one occasion, Whosoever commits sin is a servant of sin. All men are born in bondage and in debt and in servitude to the old man. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of his work, has broke the bonds of servitude to sin, has he not? And by grace, we become servants of Christ or servants of the Lord. And this word servant is very important to note that we are belonging to him. We're bond servants of him. So don't blame your parents this morning. You look to the sovereign grace of God that have intervened in your life. Like the song that we sung, Almighty grace, arrest that man. God intervened in the course of normal human history in your life and separated you from your mother's womb and by his sovereign grace drew you unto himself. You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, your whole life, your mind, your body. Somebody may say that, well, if what you're saying is true and it's all by God's sovereign grace, then what is it left for me to do? Well, that's a good question. We might only look at the very last verse of this epistle to find the answer to that wonderful question. What is it left for us to do if God's done everything? If it's his will, if it's his sovereign grace, it's not of him that runneth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. God has shown mercy in our lives. That's what grace is all about. Well, the answer is this. That God gets all the glory, both now and ever. Amen. You see, God will have his people honor him, glorify him, attribute everything to him. Now, in this particular epistle, men of corrupt minds have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And so just the very opposite, you could say the most absolute contrariness to God's sovereign grace, is men who through corrupt minds point everything to themselves. They get the credit, they get the honor, they get the glory. God intervenes in the course of natural history and says, it's different. 
I will get the glory that is due my name now. N-O-W. That's where you and I fit in. In this time world, God has privileged you to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now Jude may have been reminded many times of his uh, lavish grace that was bestowed upon him. Because he was numbered as an apostle. Much like Judas was, if you will, in terms of the outward ministry. Although Judas Iscariot, a name contributed to him to differentiate uh, him from the others, was the son of perdition. That means he was the son of destruction. Or, as the New Testament applies it, the son of one who was eternally lost. It had been better for him never to have been born. These are the hard truths that we understand that sovereign grace teaches that God out of his own love and mercy caused us uh, to be drawn to himself. We're the servants of Jesus Christ. And then notice he says the brother of James. And this is a wonderful thought. God chose us for himself, but along with others. We're in a fellowship. The brotherhood. The brotherhood. You know, we love others, don't we? Do we not? Because God has shown his love in our hearts. The brotherhoods. And you can't really take those two words and isolate them so independent of one another. To be a servant of Christ is to be a servant of others. A servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. So literally in the flesh, the other half-brother of Jesus was James. And uh, what a privilege it is to serve the Lord. Now we understand that there are many in our own assembly are not here this morning. Um, Sister Tracy, where is she at? In Dominican Republican. That's an amazing thing, serving in some capacity. We could say... That like Sister Phoebe in Romans 16, verse 1, a servant of the church. To be a servant of the church. Sister Peggy is in Florida attending the Florida Fellowship Meeting, taking Sister Connie with her. I say that's the servants of Christ in that sense. Servants of Christ who are brothers and sisters serving the Lord in that capacity. What greater privilege is there in this earth to share the gospel and to the word of God with others in the capacity uh, of the church. Sanctified, now here's what I want to re- really go quickly now, because now we're included. Jude's a servant of Christ. Somebody might say, well, I'm not a servant. Well, he could have said an apostle, could he not? But he takes the lower end of the scale, if you will, which is really the most honorable in the eyes of God, The appellation of service, of servant, of slave, of bondservant. Are you a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ by grace? Are you a brother and sister of those of like precious faith numbered to be with the church at Mount Carmel or wherever God has placed you? But overall, all of us can be included in this great, wonderful work of grace sanctified by God the Father, set apart. We are consecrated unto God. He chose us out of. We're holy unto God. We are sanctified uh, by God the Father. Notice, secondly, preserved in Jesus Christ. In other words, we have been chosen by God or set aside, separated unto God 
himself by his sovereign act and preserved or kept, literally, preserved in Christ Jesus. There's the depository of all God's goodness that he has toward anyone. If it's not in Christ, there's no hope. See, in Christ, our vital union must be in him. This is what he is saying. We're preserved in him. We're preserved. I like to think that when the Lord looks down, you know, he sees the end from the beginning. So when he looks down through the course of human history, he doesn't see me in my sin. See, that's the way I do it. I view myself in my own sin. And it deflates me. It, it, it annoys me. It's an antagonistic element in my life. To point. It points me out as someone at odds with God, you see. But how does God view me? He views me preserved in Christ. Now, how faithful is God? He is faithful and just, is He not? Okay, we're called. Look, thirdly, called. We're sanctified, preserved, and called. Now, I would say that would be the calling of God's Holy Spirit so that we have the work of the triune God right here established in the very first verse in the salvation of all of God's elect. The election of the Heavenly Father, the work and redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ were preserved, and the calling of the Holy Spirit, the awakening, the quickening, the enlivening. God has not left you in your own sin. He has called you out of darkness, out of the world, so that we should be his witness. And mercy unto you, and peace and love. Not subtracted, not added, but multiplied. Now you do the numbers on that one. Which gets you to a higher number? Is it addition or multiplication? I say it's multiplied. And all these wonderful attributes of God have been bestowed upon us today. This, I might add, is our common salvation. It's common to all the elect of God. It's we share in this mutual blessing called eternal salvation. That is the beginning of an epistle that Jude writes to brothers and sisters in a perverted world. A world that he reminds us of that is not only antagonistic toward Christ, but hates him. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ without a cause. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, they'll hate you also. The ungodly who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. In other words, they heap to themselves. They're wanton, they're empty, they're vain. They're full of themselves. They're sensual. They're satisfying themselves in the hatred of you today. And God is telling you, I've called you out of that. I've given you grace and mercy and that which what you, is what you need in order to be a testimony and witness to my glory. May the Lord bless you. The theme would be on wounds and scars. Wounds and scars. Does anybody here, and I'm not going to ask you to uh, display them, but does anybody have any scars? If you've ever had an operation, you've probably had a scar that, uh, that you bear. 
But we're going to talk about uh, some different types of wounds and scars that God's people experience. First of all, we'll see the significance of scars and the importance of scars and some of the things that they represent. John chapter 20. If you want to go to John chapter 20, it, uh, it talks about the resurrection of Christ. And I want to just make a, uh, a side note right here. It says that Mary Magdalene went to the, the, the tomb and she realized that, that Christ was not there, that he had arisen. And in verse 14, and this is just a, a side note to remember, it's like uh, some they used to say uh, called chasing a rabbit. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus and knew not that it was Jesus. Now I think this is important to note right here. That here Mary had been with Jesus. Mary knew Jesus. She knew who he was. She went to seek Jesus. She went to find Jesus. And when she arrived at the tomb, she realized that he was not there. And when she saw the gardener, she said, uh, would you tell me where you've taken him? And as it comes down, uh, she really is in the presence of Christ, but she knew him not. And I think this is symbolic of Jesus Christ and knowing Christ. Some folks will tell you that the big problem is that we need to be able to find Christ and we need to know Christ. But here even Mary could not know Christ until he revealed himself to her. And of all the people that you would have thought that would have known Christ, you would have thought that she was. But it says, Jesus said unto her, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be a gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him, tell me whence thou hast laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary, and she turned herself and saith unto him, which is master, she saith unto, he saith unto her, Touch me not, for I have not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. And she went and told the disciples that she had been with the Lord. Now, not everybody believed her testimony. Christ did show himself to the disciples just following this with Thomas being absent. And so Christ reveals himself to the disciples and then the disciples tell Thomas that they had been with Christ. And it says, but Thomas was not with them. In verse 25, it says, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said unto them, except I shall see the hands, the print of the nails, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas is saying when he hears the report that they'd been with Christ, he said, unless I can put my finger in the print of the nails and unless I can thrust my hand in his side, where the wounds are, where the scars are, he said, I won't believe. It says, and eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them this next time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be unto you. 
And then he said to Thomas, it's interesting that Christ knew what Thomas was thinking. Christ knew what Thomas had said and what was on his mind. And he says to Thomas, as Christ is in their presence, he says to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Now, from what it indicates, Thomas didn't actually have to do what Christ said right there. Thomas, in the presence of Christ, as he revealed himself to Thomas, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. We just sang a song a while ago. The last song that we sang says, All because he loved us so. That's the reason that he bore the nail prints in his hand and the wound in his side. When Christ arose, he could have been in such a fashion that you couldn't witness the nail prints in his hand. If we cut ourselves, if we injure ourselves, we fairly quickly heal and get over it. But when Christ arose, you could still witness the nail prints and the wound in his side. The wounds and the scars of Jesus Christ serve as a reminder for you and I about what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Now, let's look at another individual that experienced a wound from the Lord. Most of the time, I would say if not all the time, but I would say most of the time, When we experience wounds and scars in our life, it's the result of our own disobedience. At least oftentimes, it's the result of our own course or not following the Lord in the proper fashion. In Genesis chapter 22, it talks about Jacob. And it tells a story right here that The Lord had called Jacob to take his people into the land that he had promised. And Jacob was going to have to go through the area where his brother Esau was. Now, if you know, Jacob had connived to get the through his mother, the inheritance of Esau. And Jacob and Esau had uh, not seen each other for many, many years. And they had uh, there was. um, Uh, A separation between the two. And as as Jacob, it says that as he was going to go before Esau, as he was going to meet Esau, if you read on down, it says Jacob was greatly distressed. He sent some folks ahead of him and they said, Esau is there to meet you. But Esau has about 400 men that are there to meet you as well. And so Jacob began to fear 
for his own life and he began to fear for the life of his family and the life of his servants and all those that were with him, even though God had told him to 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 go this way. And it says that Jacob in verse seven says Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him into two herds. He divided the camels and the flocks into two bands. And he says, if Esau come to one company and smite it, then the other company, which is left, shall escape. So Jacob comes up with this uh, idea that uh, I'm not going to send everybody before me, but I'll send half the folks before me. And if Esau apprehends them, then there'll still be uh, half the bunch that's left. And it says that Jacob then began to talk to the Lord and he said, Oh God, my father, Oh God of my father, Abraham and of my father, Isaac. Now, I think that's real important to hold on to right here that Jacob is talking to the Lord and he refers to the Lord and he says, Lord, I know that you're the God of my grandfather, Abraham, and I know that you're the the Lord of my father, Isaac. And then he begins to to plead his case to the Lord. But he refers to him and he says, you're the God of Abraham and you're the God of Isaac. And then he says, here's my case and I want to plead my case with you. He says, and and that's an important point to, to remember right there. Because after this experience that Jacob has with the Lord... After the Lord begins to deal with Jacob and Jacob has this uh, personal experience with the Lord to where he's never the same as he was before. He changes his uh, his approach to God or his reference to God to say he's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac and he is my God as well. And so sometimes we have to experience some of the same trials like Jacob did right here to know that he is. Is my God as well. Not just the God of my grandparents, not just the God of my parents, but he's my God as well. I'm very thankful for the uh, connection to the church and to the Lord and to Jesus Christ that I had through my grandparents. I'm very thankful for the influence that a, a godly mother had on my life. I'm very, very thankful for that. But I have to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is my God as well. I remember when my grandmother went to be with the Lord. Uh, I, I, she was the the uh, she, my grandmother and grandfather were my first connection to the church, and they were such a blessing and such an inspiration. And I I wondered after they passed away, after they had bon- both gone to be with the Lord, how I would if I'd still feel the same about the church as I did before. And I realized that I felt even more strongly about it than I did while they were there. I'm thankful for their influence, thankful for their blessing, but it has to be your Lord. It has to be your church. It has to be your people as well. Look what happens to Jacob right here. Jacob says, you're the God of my grandfather Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, and the Lord which saidest unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will dwell, I will deal well with thee. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies which thou, the mercies and of the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. 
For with my staff, I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me, and the mother with the children. And he says, you've said, Lord, and he begins to claim the promises. I will surely do thee good. And he says, I will bless thy seed. He says, Lord, would you intervene and would you go before? And it says that as you go on down, and this is a real interesting experience right here in verse 24. Verse 23, it says, and he took them and sent them over the brook and he sent them over that that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him. Until the breaking of day. Now that's interesting. A little bit perplexing. When you realize. That the one that Jacob was wrestling with. As it tells us. Further down. Was with the Lord. Maybe it was. In the impression of Christ. But it says that he wrestled with God. Now, you wonder, why would someone wrestle with God? Jacob found himself in a big problem. Jacob found himself in a situation where it looked like there was no way out. You ever been there? You have a situation in your life and you think, I cannot see from where I am that there can ever be a way out. I can't see where I can get through this trial, this difficulty. It is bigger than I am. And Jacob was seeing the trial He was coming up on his brother. His brother had 400 men. And in Jacob's mind, all he could conclude is that surely my life and the life of uh, the children and all those that are with me are going to be taken. And so Jacob finds himself remembering the promises of the Lord, but seeing the enemy at hand and and being overwhelmed by what was in front of him. And so it says that that Jacob had a confrontation in the night. And it says that he wrestled with a man until the breaking of day. And he, he, he had to know that it was Uh, either an angel or somewhat of a spiritual being or a spiritual influence by what Jacob says right here. And it says that he wrestled with the man until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint and he wrestled with him. From that point on, Jacob... Uh, Apparently, Jacob had an indication that he was not the same, that the hollow of his thigh was out of joint and he bore a limp to 
uh, as he as he walked about, there was some indication or evidence that there had been something that happened to him. Jacob had a wound or a scar right here. And look at what it says right here. He says, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Jacob right here, I believe, knew that his only hope of deliverance was that God bless him, that God intervene and that he was he was holding on to that and begging that there be a blessing. And he says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to turn loose. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. He wasn't boastful. He was desperate. He was holding on to the Lord, which was his only hope in this situation. And did you know that's some really good advice for you and I as well, is that we hold on to the Lord, which is our only hope in desperate situations. You find yourself in a desperate situation. You desire that it be different in life. Your only hope is in the Lord. It's in Jesus Christ. It's not in anybody else. It's not in the preacher. It's not in the husband. It's not in the wife. It's not in the deacons. It's not in the brothers or sisters. It is in the Lord. That's where his hope did lie. And Jacob said, I'm not going to let go. Until Lord, you bless me. That's my only hope. Otherwise, the enemy's going to overtake me. Jacob, after he was injured in this wrestling match, he was never the same again. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like to have been Jacob's grandkids or his great-grandkids? And when they ask him, Granddad, Why is it you walk with a limp? He had the privilege of telling him. I had an experience with the Lord. Our battle scars oftentimes point us back to a close experience with the Lord. It serves as a reminder for ourselves and for those about us about the close deliverance of the Lord. Jacob said to him, what is thy name? Uh, No, he said to Jacob, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and he said, tell me, I pray thee, thy name. Jacob's asking him. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. He said, I've seen God face to face and my 
life is preserved. It says, therefore, verse 32, the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of his thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. It it goes on down to say that uh, in chapter 33, and it'd be good to read, you'd, you'd be receive a blessing out of it where Jacob does send those ahead. And, and Jacob also sends, uh, sends presents ahead as well. He sends uh, presents to Esau. Uh, but it says that, that God did tender the heart of Esau. And it talks about how that when Jacob saw Esau, Esau ran and met him and he embraced him and he fell on his neck and it says he kissed him and they wept. And I think this is pretty neat how he describes it here. It says he lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and the children and he said, who are those with thee? And I think this is a blessing how that Jacob describes those that were with him. He said, these are the children which God hath graciously given Thy servant. Sometimes along the way, when we're experiencing a really heavy load, we're experiencing a trial, experiencing a difficulty, experiencing a hard time. Sometimes in that journey or in that midst, God sends us some folks along the way to help. Our true deliverance comes from God. But sometimes God sends us some helpers along the way. When Moses, you can go over to Exodus chapter 17 and you can see the story of Moses. And it says that when Moses was holding up the rod of God, that the children of Israel were able to see the rod of God and they were encouraged and they were able to be victorious over the enemy. But it said that the arms of Moses got heavy and they began to go down. And when the arms of Moses would go down, it said that the enemy would begin to prevail. And God put it on the heart of Aaron and Hur to stand on the each side of Moses, one on one side and one on the other. And they held up the arms of Moses. And so sometimes in our trial, in our difficulty, in our experience, God sends us some errands and hers along the way to help us in that journey. In Genesis chapter 48, as Jacob is calling his children together, he refers to the Lord. And he said, yes, he was the God of my grandfather, Abraham. He's the God of my father, Isaac. But he said, he's also been my God. And he said, he's blessed me all the days of my life. He's led me and he's blessed me with his presence. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord that He is good. Sometimes an experience like this causes us to causes a a variety of things. It causes us to to reevaluate our own life. 
It causes us to reevaluate our priorities in life. It causes us to look back on our life and it causes us to realize that our strength and our help is solely in the Lord. It causes us to depend upon the Lord. It, it can serve as a turning point in our life. And as we look back upon our life and as we see the battle scars that maybe we experience in our life along the way, we can see that during some of those times that was the Closest times of fellowship that we experience with the Lord. When we see that we went through the valleys, we couldn't see a way out. When we felt like that we were totally overwhelmed. When we felt like that we were totally discouraged. And then all of a sudden the Lord makes a way out of no way. We can see that it was truly at the hand of a merciful and gracious and mighty God. The scars of Christ point us and remind us toward his love for us. And when we look at our own scars in our life, that some that have been brought upon us of our own accord. Truly, it should point us back to the love that Christ has for us. Because as Jacob said, it's of the Lord's it's of the Lord's mercies. That we're not consumed. The Lord spared us. He's blessed us to be here to this point. He's provided for us. He's made a way for us. He's delivered us. And so as the, the scars of Christ are important to look back upon and realize his love for us. We should allow the scars in our life to be used to reference the Lord and Christ as we look back upon them. And if our children and grandchildren and those about us ask questions. Well, would you tell me about that experience or this experience? You can tell them about how that the Lord led you and guide you through difficult times. Jacob says it's of the Lord's mercies. The Lord has spared us. It's of his grace. May God bless you. glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.